something that is funny and interesting to me is that if you would look at our staff here at Connection Point Church, we're all very different than each other. And one of the main ways is that Aaron is more intellectual than Holly and I. I can say he's smarter than me. I won't say that about Holly because she's also smarter than me. But when I preach, sometimes I think, man, I really don't have as much, quote unquote, smarts as Aaron does. And so today I'm going to tell you about something that I think is really intriguing to me. Because what us not as smart people do is we like to talk about things that you can't tell us that we're wrong about. So in college, I had a friend, and if Joey, you're watching, which I know you're not watching, but if you were, uh, he would remin reminisce on these days really well. There was uh, my friend Joey and I, we, would, we loved the concept of time travel. One, because we could talk about it hours on end and there was no right answers. And we talk about if it's possible. Is it possible to travel faster than the speed of light than allowing me to time travel X, Y, Z? We would talk about it like we knew enough science and physics to know the right answer, right? We'd stay up super late, I'm sure, on school nights in college and go to our 8 a.m. classes just drained because we couldn't time travel backwards to sleep more. So why is the concept of time travel so interesting to me? Because it doesn't have any answers, but it actually poses a lot of questions. So, for example, if you talk about time travel, you don't have to talk about it very long to run into a specific issue which is why timelines flow in a straight line. And this issue would be this. If time travel were possible, and I were to go back in time and, well, and murder a distant relative of mine, thus eliminating my own ability to exist, how did I ever go back in time to do this in the first place? This would be something that is called a paradox. Because it's something that would hold to be true. Logically, if I could time travel, I could go back in time and eliminate the ability for me to exist. But if I eliminate the ability that I exist, I could have never done that in the first place. Therefore, the paradox is that my existence therefore eliminated my own existence. I say all of that to totally confuse you. So I hope I have you in the right place. <laughs> Maybe a more simpler way to look at a paradox is just thinking about our own lives and things that don't make sense in the way that we operate. One of the things I know is confusing about the way I operate is that I am most focused when I'm a little bit distracted. What does that look like? That means when I'm reading, the other part of my brain that still has energy to think is actually the most focused thoughts I've had all day. Or I love to work in coffee shops. Why? Because there's a lot going on. And there's a lot of things that distract me. But if you would look at the amount of work I got done, it's much more than if I was sitting in the silence of my own home. Because when I sit in the silence of my own home, the ability to focus is a bigger distraction than real distraction. This is another paradox. So let's define that word paradox. The definition of paradox is this. A seemingly absurd or self-contradictory statement or proposition that when investigated or explained may prove to be well-founded or true. For example, if I could time travel, in theory, I could eliminate my own existence. That would be a paradox because it's absurd. You shouldn't be able to do that. Or if I word it this way, when I'm distracted, I'm actually most focused. That would be a paradox. That's a sentence that doesn't make sense, but it may prove to be well-founded or true. 
It doesn't take much reading of Scripture to find that Jesus taught many times in paradox. And he would say things that, on first glance, you're like, that is impossible and doesn't make any sense. But in fact, it turns out to be more true than anything we ever knew in the first century. And so today we're in John chapter 12. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. If not, it'll be on the screen. And I'm going to read the entire passage from verses 20 to 33. And then go back and we're going to talk about some of the things that Jesus said. But I want you to imagine for a second that you're the people in this context. Because you would have known a couple things or thought you knew a couple things. The main one being that Jesus, who's called the Messiah, is coming to save you, and they would have had preconceived ideas that that was going to be a military venture. That would be Jesus is going to come, and he's going to command an army, and he is going to save us from the powers of Rome, because we're the Jewish people. He's going to save us. That's not exactly what he means by saving. So imagine if that was your preconceived ideas, what you might be thinking when Jesus is done talking in John chapter 12. It starts in verse 20. It says this. Now, there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip, in turn, told Jesus. Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies... It produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it up for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My father will honor the one who serves me. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. It was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd that was there and heard it said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to them. Jesus said, the voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. Which already was enough details that the people would have said, wait a second, you're going to die and you're going to die soon. You haven't done what we've expected you to do yet. You haven't haven't saved us yet, Jesus. You're going to die. And on top of that, he prefaces the fact that he's going to die with a series of three paradoxes. It doesn't take a scholar to find these. It takes an ordinary person to read these and go, wait, that doesn't make sense. That is not how the life I understand works. And the first one we find back in verse 24. John 12, 24 says this, Very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. This is the simplest of the three. Because we understand that a seed must die to produce more seeds. We understand that. We understand how planting something works. That for the sake out of one seed comes many. But Jesus isn't just talking about seeds. The paradox here is this, that true life only comes through death. He's just prefacing what he's about to say, because there's a couple deaths that he's talking about specifically. And the first is literal, physical death. 
Face value, Jesus is deceived. It's easy to see that if we know the whole story. They didn't. So they might be sitting here thinking, why is Jesus telling us about this seed? And then later he tells us he's going to die. What kind of crazy plan does he have where he thinks that his death is better for us? You can also look at the history of the church. If you need a better example of one death producing many lives, the sad history of the church is that early on in the church, it was through the death of many martyrs that we actually found the most growth in our church. Because when the government started to push back against people who followed Jesus, and the people who followed Jesus didn't back down, that drew more people in. That's a confusing concept and a disturbing concept for most of us who like our lives as safe and joyful as they hopefully are. I know that's a hard one for me because I don't want to go back to a day where that's how the church grows. But Jesus, being God and all-knowing, would know that's part of the story. It's also slightly figurative because it has to do with a place that you have to come to in your own heart, which is a place where I know that if I'm following Jesus with all of me, I'm willing to die for it. But I don't want to hang out in this just really dark place for so long because Jesus says that there's a good thing at the end of each and every one of his paradoxical examples. Because there's another kind of death that he brings up in the second paradox. And this is the concept of dying to ourselves. We find this directly after in verse 25. It says, anyone who loves their life will lose it. Well, anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. So the second paradox is this. Only by spending life do we earn it. How do I spend life? That does not mean putting yourself in places where you are going to die. I don't mean spending every last breath so that your life is short. Not the things I'm talking about. But a person who loves their life is driven by two things. You'd be driven either by personal gain or security. If you were to look out for yourself, you want one of two things in probably every decision that you're making in terms of goals and dreams and potential outcomes. In what situation do I gain the most? Or in what situation am I most secure? You can consider the stereotypical American dream as a prime example of this. I'd like a big house, I'd like lots of things, and I'd like to be safe. This is not Jesus' dream. But this is how we refuse to spend our lives. Because what we're doing instead is collecting things that we can't take with us. Collecting things that actually hold no weight in the kingdom of God, and we're just collecting for the sake of collecting so that someday when our life is over, we can say we collected a lot of stuff. Hate to break it to you, people who collect a lot of stuff, there's a lot of them, and we don't even know who they are because it's mostly stuff. You don't start naming random collectors of things. Another way to word this is that I consider these people to be, quote-unquote, hoarders of life. Because they're always looking out for themselves. But it doesn't always look like hoarding things. 
You don't have to hang out with me very often to know that I am not driven in a sense where all of my life is about having more money. If I were to say I wasn't driven by money, people who know me would laugh because I don't spend money easily. Okay? For example, I have a TV in my house that's too big, and I won't tell you how big it is because I'm a little bit embarrassed by it. Uh, not really. I'm kind of proud of it, but I'm still not going to tell you how big it is. Um, but I shopped for this TV a long time. And by a long time, I mean like over a year ago on Black Friday, I was like, next Black Friday, I'm buying a TV. What did I do? The next year, I bought a TV. But I knew what TV was worth the amount of money I was going to spend on it. Not because I have an overattachment to money. It's that when I let go of money, I feel less secure. It's not about gaining things. For me, it's about security. So sometimes one of those things weighs heavier on us than the other. I definitely am a person who, when I am in a place where I am not spending life, it's because I'm making the safe choice. And for many of us, that's true in most of our lives. We don't want to take risks because we don't know what the outcome is going to be. For many of us, that's the hardest thing about following Jesus is because he says, I need you to do this. And you say, I need to know how that's going to turn out for me. I run into that all the time. Hey, I need you to do this. But why? Anyone have those kids? Anyone were those kids? I was that kid. But why? I need to know how this is going to affect me. It's not so much that the thing you're asking me to do is necessarily difficult or hard, but I see the potential of this going south. And so instead, how about I don't spend my life capital? I'll just hold on to that. I'll just keep my security instead. And what you don't know is what the outcome could have been because you won't know until you're willing to let go of your life. Which is exactly why Jesus says, anyone who loves their life will lose it. Because if you live so much into your own personal gain and security, you will get to the end of your life and you'll look back and think, what if? What if I would have just made that generous gift? What if I would have stepped out of my comfort zone? What if? And I imagine that in that moment, if you were honest and having that conversation in prayer, God would be like, if only you knew. If you would just spend your life, you would have gained something far greater. But I'm not going to tell you what that is until you're willing to spend it. We all love answers. God doesn't always give us answers. Which brings us to the third paradox, and we find this in verse 26. Mind you, this has been verse 24, 25, and 26, which means Jesus is just rattling these off with no explanation and says, whoever serves me must follow me. And where I am, my servant also will be. My father will honor the one who serves me. Because the third paradox is this. Only through service comes greatness. And many of us know this deep down. We know this because we respect people who serve us well. Think of the people that, if I were to say, hey, who has had a great effect on your life? You don't think of people that gave you stuff. You think of people that did something for you. Because they served you. Their service is what you remember. Now, don't twist this paradox and think, I would like to be famous, so I'm just going to start serving people. 
Because I guarantee if that's your mindset, God's going to say, there's a lot of ways for me to bring greatness that won't be fame. But he'll still use your service. Another example of this is if you look at the Bible, the heroes that we have are heroes who are willing to serve instead of serve themselves. You have Abraham, who was asked time and time again to do crazy, non-secure things, with the greatest being, are you willing to sacrifice your son for me? You have Esther, who is a queen, but in that day, you wouldn't have been allowed to talk to the king, but she gave up her security to save countless people. And the stories go on and on with the greatest being Jesus giving up his life to save everyone. These are the people we remember. These are the people that we document. These are the great ones. Why? Because they served God with everything they had and said, you know what? I don't need safety. I don't need gain. I need to be a servant to and you can look at all sorts of stories. You can, you can even start to ask people, uh, this is a fun little test. If you don't believe me and you say, you know what, service isn't what brings you greatness. I know some famous people that are timeless. Ask someone a generation younger than you how many songs they can name of your favorite band growing up. It'll be probably zero. Why? Because they don't know them. Because they were a blip on the radar. You know names we do know? Mother Teresa, Martin Luther King. You could just go through the list. Why? Doesn't matter if you agree or disagree with them. They served people. And at a some level, we know deep down we can't, we can't diminish that. We can't diminish service. But why tell you about all of these paradoxes? Why try to confuse you? Uh, why bring up things that Jesus would have been like, you know what, I'm just going to say these to just rattle their minds, and maybe they won't ask me any questions because I have them too compelling. I don't think that's the point. Because if you paid attention, Jesus is making offers to us. Because on the flip side of every one of those conclusions, is a much greater life than we are able to understand. And that's what Jesus is trying to explain to us. If you live the way that you understand, you can only get so far. But if you follow me to a life that you can't understand, you'll find much greater things. You'll find greatness. You'll earn a fulfilling life. And so on and so forth. But that comes with a choice choice that we have to make, a choice that won't make any sense to us. And this is a choice that is simple. And it's the choice to choose a new perspective. And this perspective is the choice to choose to allow God's perspective to outweigh yours. I think a really great example of this would be the average sports fan saying one of my favorite things as they yell at television. And it's, why didn't you see that? You know why they didn't see it? 
because you're watching from your couch with a bird's eye view. And in some sports, they're wearing a helmet and they can see three really large men running at them. That's why they didn't see the guy 50 yards away. But we're mad at him. Sometimes I think God does that to us. He wouldn't say, why can't you see it? He might just say, I wish you could. Oh, if only they could see it. But if they knew, they wouldn't do it. I can't show them. Because I knew that's the question you're going to ask, because that's the question I ask. If God wants me to see it, why didn't he show me? Because we probably really wouldn't do it. Because if you knew that God was going to someday make you move, but you knew that that place was going to be better than any place you've ever been before, but you had to say yes to a small decision now, you probably wouldn't do that because you don't want to leave here. Even though you have no idea what the outcome is in the future. You got to choose to buy into God's perspective. Because when God asks you to do something, he can see infinitely more of the picture than we are. He understands you better than you understand yourself. And he says, if you buy into me, watch how I invest in you. Watch what happens when you decide to live your life for me instead of for yourself. It's a very, it's a big decision that we're asked to make. And the choice to live into these things and choose to buy a new perspective we can never see, this is, this is what faith is. When you hear us talk about this word faith, I think that's the best way to describe it. I'll believe it even though I'll never be able to explain it. Which is kind of what a paradox is and kind of why I think Jesus primes us for this information by teaching that way. Because to follow God, you're going to have to be okay with things that don't make sense. Because even, even myself, if I want to talk logically, I think, man, there probably could have been another way than for Jesus to die. The answer is there isn't. And I'm really thankful for it. I'm really thankful for it. I'm really thankful that Jesus did what he did. And if you think that this is a perspective change that was easy for Jesus, you didn't read this whole passage. Because at the end of it, in one line, it's the only line that John gives to Jesus mentions how hard this is going to be. But that he's going to choose to glorify God, the Father, instead of himself. The Son of God, who is fully God and fully man, made the same decision that we're called to make each and every day, which is, God knows better than me. That's a hard thing to say. That's a hard thing to say in front of people. That's a humbling thing. God knows better than me. So when God says things I don't understand, just assume he's right. Because he is. So we have to say yes to what I'm calling the paradoxical life, or yes to God's perspective. Yes to things we don't understand. Now, if I've done even remotely this close to a good job today, you should be like, yeah, I'm, I'm cool with that. Yeah, I'm in. Uh, if that's how you're making your decision, you're not ready. And that's how I make the decision most days. Yeah, I can do that. And then when life runs into me, I'm like, ooh, 
You're asking me to do what? You want me to hang out with teenagers more than I hang out with adults? Hmm. That's interesting. Because the older I get, the still young they are. And I'm not that old. So I'm not so excited. I'm already feeling that. God's going to call us to say yes to a lot of things. And there are going to be things we don't understand. There are going to be things that lead us to experiences we may not understand until we're out of them. Or we may never understand. You may never see the fruits of your labor. Sorry. But I promise, if God asks you to do it, it glorifies his name. And so I don't want you to respond to chase the semi-average motivational speaker. If you're going to respond to anybody today, it better be God and not me. Because if you're responding to me, I promise tomorrow this decision will not stand that you've made today. Here's the decision. I'm going to believe God over myself. And I'm going to choose to say yes when he asks me to do so. And it's that simple. And it's bold because it probably is going to go against all the truth that you know. Other people, they're not going to get it. They're not going to understand it. Why? Because you chose to believe things like, through serving comes greatness. If you'd say that to someone who doesn't believe it, they'd be like, you're wacko. You're crazy. Maybe we are. But at the end of this, the reward that comes with everything that Jesus mentions is so great. Why wouldn't we want to dive into that life? So the band's going to come back up, and they're going to sing that last song again. And so I pose the question, will you say yes? And with that comes a specific test. And we have this test sitting in front of you at our church because we think it's important. We have this piece of furniture that sits in the front of many uh, religious places, specifically churches, and it's called an altar, and it's a place of prayer. Here's why I like an altar. I will not sit here and tell you that something magical happens here because of the piece of furniture. Because at the end of the day, this is made of wood. But I will tell you that there is something important that I believe in, which is posture and movement. Because some of you may say to me, Chase, can't I make that decision in my seat? Yeah, but sometimes God's going to ask you to get out of your seat. So maybe your first decision needs to be, I'm going to actually move today. Why? Because I need to make a decision that's not a piece of cake for me. I need to get up in front of people either I know or I don't know and make a decision. Whether that's for the first time or the millionth time, it's important to make a decision. And sometimes the movement solidifies the decision. So whether it's the fact that you need posture so that you can be humble, or you need to know that you're actually willing to say yes and stand up and move to the altar, that's up to you to decide. I can't make that for you, but I hope that that's something you want. So as the band sings this last song, uh, that is your opportunity to pray and to say, God, I believe your life is greater than the one I can understand. And I'm going to say yes to that.